Welcome to the What We Lost podcast. Bill Marno resigned his role as finance minister, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau prorogued Parliament, leaving We Charity to twist in the wind. As a result of the partisan politics and often inaccurate media reporting, We Charity faced a difficult and devastating decision closing its doors in Canada. Politicians and pundits like Pierre Polyev and Jesse Brown claimed it was nothing more than a publicity stunt. I'm Martin Luther King III, and this is the What We Lost podcast. This is the true story behind the We Charities Board's decision to close the charity in Canada. Closing Doors Having finished his testimony and offered expressions of regret, Justin Trudeau promptly went on vacation. Removing himself from the center of the storm was a clever strategy. In his absence, the feeding frenzy continued, and journalists focused their attention back on we. The charity's already beleaguered PR team was now overwhelmed with media questions. Between August 5th the day the Prime Minister left, and August 18th, the day he reappeared publicly, there were more than 12,000 mentions of we in the media, focusing on everything from lobbying issues to staff reductions to real estate sales. As usual, columnist Brian Lilly at the Toronto Sun was in high dudgeon, like Icarus getting too close to the sun, he wrote. We and the Kilberger brothers got too close to Trudeau, and it burned them bad. In the Washington Post, David Moscroft complained that the whole affair reeks of a culture of the insider. It reminded him of the family compact, he said, of the bad old days of tight-knit groups of power-wielding courtiers captured and constrained by groupthink and a self-assuredness and sense of purpose that no mere mortal ought to own. If Trudeau had imagined he could come back from his holiday and simply turn the page, he was in for a rude surprise. He must have barely had his suitcase unpacked when he and Bill Murnau sat down for a heart-to-heart on August 17th. That evening, Murnau held a news conference to announce that he was resigning as both finance minister and an MP because he wanted to run for the vacant position of Secretary General of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD. Most people weren't buying it. Then-conservative leader Andrew Scheer immediately tweeted, Biomarno's resignation is further proof of a government in chaos, at a time when Canadians are worried about their health and their finances. Justin Trudeau's government is so consumed by scandal that Trudeau has amputated his right hand to try and save himself. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh had much the same take. In the middle of a financial crisis, Justin Trudeau has lost his finance minister, he tweeted. Every time he gets caught breaking ethics laws, he makes someone else take the heat. That's not leadership. 
This whole We Charity thing just didn't seem to want to go away. But if people were going to keep on asking questions, the Prime Minister at least had a way of preventing them from getting answers. Resetting Priorities Today I've asked the Governor-General to prorogue Parliament, which must happen before any government can present a throne speech, Trudeau told Canadians at a hastily convened press announcement, during which he also confirmed Murnau's resignation. Prorogation was necessary, Trudeau explained, because his government needed to reset its priorities, which had changed due to the pandemic. Once Parliament is prorogued or suspended, members are released from their duties, unfinished business is dropped, and committees can no longer sit or carry on their work. In other words, Parliament closes. Trudeau shut things down the day before an agency called Speaker Spotlight was to deliver to the ETHI committee the records of all speaking fees various organizations had paid to members of the Trudeau family over the years. The Prime Minister's timing was highly suspect, and it fueled the perception that he had something to hide. By extension, some thought, so must we charity. The political and media narrative hinged on the idea that there was something improper in an organization doing business with the government and also paying members of the Prime Minister's family to speak at events. But anyone could use a speaking bureau to book Margaret Trudeau or Alexander Trudeau. And in fact, both had been hired by a long list of Canadian charities and businesses, many of which also did a considerable amount of work with the government or accepted funding from various federal departments and agencies. The speaking bureau records would have shown the many companies and nonprofits that had engaged the Prime Minister's family members, and Canadians would have seen that there was nothing unusual about this. Perhaps the opposition and the media, so eager to knock Trudeau down, would even have shifted their attention to some of those other organizations and businesses. Instead, it was tidier and more newsworthy to portray the actions of we as unique and questionable. The charity was hung out to dry once again, and Canadians were left with the impression that it had done something wrong, even though there was no evidence of that at all. Mark and Craig took in the unexpected prorogation announcement in the basement of Mark's Toronto home. As they watched Trudeau shift effortlessly from English to French and back again, the words, We Charity Scandal, scrolled by on the Chiron below. They were alone, a rare occurrence, and they absorbed the news in silence. They later told me that this was the first time they'd both realized it could all be over for We Charity in Canada. Neither one said it aloud, but they both knew that the organization they had built over 25 years might not survive. A few friends reached out to me in the days after prorogation 
To say that we must have been ecstatic, Mark recalled, it was just the opposite. Proroguing Parliament made this entire situation even more political. We knew that it would enrage Trudeau's critics, and they would channel their anger toward We Charity. And we knew that the conspiracy theorist would come out of the woodwork. It was at that moment that we saw the writing on the wall. While Trudeau's announcement beat down the already dejected brothers, my own sense that things were permanently headed downhill came much earlier, on July 10th, when Dalal informed the board of directors that the charity was planning to proactively suspend its relationship with its corporate partners. The media environment was getting increasingly toxic, and the charity believed that cutting ties with partners before they were engulfed in the tsunami of negative press coverage would improve the chances those relationships could eventually be resurrected. We were looking to the horizon, Craig said, even early on in the summer. We knew that if we charity were to survive in any form, we would need our partners. And if we allowed them to step aside before being dragged into the media storm, then perhaps, once the dust settled, they would be open to joining us again. We expected the negative media cycle would pass in the weeks ahead, giving us enough time to rebuild. This seemed like the only viable plan at the time, given that every Canadian corporate partner would face pressure to reevaluate its relationship with the charity in light of all that was happening. But deep down, I knew it would be hard to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. What followed were many difficult but heartfelt conversations with CEOs across Canada. Craig and Mark let them know that while the organization's international COVID relief efforts would proceed as planned, most external programs would be temporarily suspended. In follow-up emails, Mark told partner companies that the main goal was to ensure that no individuals who benefited from WE's programs would be adversely affected by the reputational issues facing the charity. When presented with these proactive requests from the charity to Paul's partnerships, some companies opted to fulfill their financial commitments anyway. Others redirected their contributions to different WE charity programs that would carry on or put their funding temporarily on hold. But many agreed that it made sense to part ways and check back in when things calmed down. David Eisenstadt, CEO of the Keg restaurant chain and one of the major funders behind WE Global Learning Center, told me that he was fully prepared to continue backing the organization in whatever way he could. He'd been a supporter of WE's mission for 15 years, and KEG was the title sponsor of the first WE Day in 2007. I'm leaving my money in the organization, he affirmed. I don't want a penny back if they can use it in their endowment. The KEG Spirit Foundation even released a statement saying it would wait to learn of WE's plans and remained committed to evaluating their vision for continuing to inspire young people who want to make a difference. Once again, however, the media spun things differently. 
In their version of events, companies like RBC and Good Life Fitness had dropped we like a hot potato, desperate to put distance between themselves and the beleaguered charity. CTV reported that a flood of companies announced they were dropping their support for the embattled organization. In the Globe and Mail, Paul Waldy published a story with the headlines, Virgin Suspends We Charity Donations, Telus Drops Partnership, as Sponsors Review Ties. In fact, Telus never stops supporting We Charity. It actually continues to help the organization to this day by providing significant in-kind support in the form of free internet and phone services. And after listing off several companies that he said had terminated their contracts with WE, Waldy finally got around to mentioning that Virgin had already had to slash its donations because of the pandemic. The airline grounded all of its planes for three months, he noted, and only recently restarted a handful of flights. That has meant that virtually no donations have been sent to WE since most of the money Virgin contributes comes from in-flight donations from passengers. But all this coverage left Canadians with the impression that WE was being abandoned in droves by leading companies. And efforts by the organization to make clear that it had proactively suspended those relationships just made we sound like George Costanza in the preemptive breakup episode of Seinfeld. The coverage quickly had a ripple effect, and individual donors began contacting the charity to ask what had prompted the corporate partners to terminate their agreements. Was there something the corporations knew that ordinary donors did not? Behind the scenes, executives at those same corporations were often lamenting the situation, expressing support for the charity, and indicating that they hoped to renew ties when feasible. Tell us, for instance, resisted pressure to remove Craig from the board of the Friendly Future Foundation, which funds charitable programs focused on health, education, and technology. When Paul Waldy of The Globe called TELUS, to ask whether he would remain on the board, Craig offered to step down to avoid becoming a distraction. But TELUS CEO Darren Entwistle called him to reiterate his support for WE and refused the offer. I appreciated Darren's words and his moral courage, Craig told me. His term as a board member was recently renewed for 2022. In the public square, though, other corporate supporters of We Charity were mostly silent as they took stock of the media whirlwind and protected their brands and reputations. Today, with the benefit of hindsight, I question whether more industry leaders should have had the courage to stand by the work of the organization and try to dispel myths and misstatements that were coming from all quarters. Many of those people had big platforms and loud megaphones, but I also understood why they rushed for cover and why businesses had to behave cautiously when serious allegations were being raised. All summer, the media published inaccurate information and also refused to correct or hear the facts, Craig told me. 
We were constantly on the phone with stakeholders, donors, teachers, partners, correcting all the misinformation. We tried to be proactive and connect before things spiraled, but because we was in the headlines on nearly a daily basis, it became impossible to convince some people that there was no real problem with the charity. Many students and teachers also offered support to the charity, but the organization was reluctant to try to mobilize them lest they become fodder for attacks by politicians and journalists. People ask me all the time why we didn't rely on our network to fight back, Mark told me a year later. We has three million followers on social media, far more than any of the politicians or pundits. We have 7,000 schools with hundreds of thousands of young people in our network. We briefly, very briefly, talked about the idea but quickly vetoed it. Why? Because these are mostly kids. We saw the vile words being posted on social media. People who posted positive things about the charity, people we didn't even know, were immediately met with profanity, threats, and mocking. We didn't want children, educators, or even our corporate partners to be anywhere near that. The same concerns made them weary of encouraging current and former staff members to speak out. I spoke to many who wanted to be heard, who wanted Canadians to know their own personal stories. These were people who had put life and family plans on hold to give everything they had to the charity and its mission. They had often sacrificed more lucrative opportunities because they found working at WE so redeeming. But they had seen the same online attacks Mark and Craig had, and some worried that speaking out could hurt them with new employers now and in the future. Unfortunately, the media often made it sound as though these staff members were reluctant to speak out because they feared reprisal from We Charity and the Killburgers. But in my experience, it was the other way around. They were scared to say anything positive because they knew they would be castigated on social media and they couldn't bear the abuse after the turmoil they'd already been through. The climate of fear was palpable. Hard Decisions By suspending its partnership agreements, the charity hoped to be able to move forward and refocus on its We Schools and We Villages programs. But the media wasn't ready to let go. The phrase We Charity Scandal was still everywhere, and the negative coverage about virtually every aspect of the organization's operations never ceased. It was alarming to see that even after we withdrew from the CSSG, the political ramifications continued to be felt. Provincial governments were quick to distance themselves from the controversy, and that started to impact the charity's domestic programs across the country. At the end of July, a spokesperson for conservative MPP, Stephen Lecce, the Ontario Minister of Education, told the press that the minister was concerned and troubled by what he was hearing about We Charity. This is taxpayer money. Hard-working people in this province deserve to know that their money is delivering value 
and these allegations raise serious questions. The spokesperson said, adding that the ministry would not be renewing its contract with the charity. Lecce himself told the Toronto Sun that he was encouraging school boards across the province to halt all new contracts and investigate existing contracts with WE. They cut funding for youth mental health programs in Ontario schools during the COVID pandemic because of the charity's perceived relationship with federal liberals, Mark said, noting that before the CSSG debacle, Lecce staff had constantly reached out to ask if the organization could host the minister for events at the WeGLC. In Saskatchewan, conservative-leaning Premier Scott Moe, who had spent his Christmas break at a WE partner community in Kenya and had praised Craig as dynamic and resilient, also backed away from an agreement his government had been forging with the charity to deliver mental health programming to thousands of students. The provincial NDP had attacked the premier for choosing a Trudeau-linked Toronto-based charity to develop materials for our schools. The politician's willingness to walk away from mental health initiatives was particularly disturbing to me because countless studies have shown that young people were experiencing a significant increase in depression and anxiety during COVID. Online learning and social isolation made it more important than ever to promote mental well-being for young people. And WE Charity had a proven track record of producing high-quality resources for teachers. No one even tried to pretend that the charity's ability to deliver was in question. This was politics, pure and simple. It felt like the lowest point in the organization's history. The Kilbergers, we senior leadership team, and the board of directors had many tough conversations about what could be done to salvage the charity. For the first time, people began to openly acknowledge that the Canadian operations might need to shutter permanently. Scott Baker, who had been with the organization for 20 years, said, at this point, our daily meetings grew increasingly somber. The guy who usually loved reviewing financial documents and looking at spreadsheets now found it hard to face the figures on the page. There seemed to be no way to reconcile declining funding with the needs of We Charity's beneficiaries, he explained. It seemed that keeping the doors open in Canada was going to mean bleeding money and not preserving funds to complete existing international programs. Every meeting involved grasping at any straw. But while we were trying to find solutions, the negative news stories kept creating more problems. Everyone recognized that it would be challenging, if not impossible, to raise money with this black cloud hanging over the charity's head. Not only had corporate and individual donations dried up, but youth fundraising had also slowed to a trickle once schools shut down due to COVID. Even me to we couldn't step in to help because it was also being buffeted by the pandemic. We Charity was primarily funded through institutional partners, 
such as corporations, and earned income through me to we, Scott explained. We hoped to maintain more of our general donors, but the negative media was nonstop. Through August and into September, the team worked with external financial consultants and lawyers to game out different scenarios and see if there was a way to keep going. What if we charity school in Kenya boarded students for half days instead of full days? What if the local government took over Baraka Hospital? What if the organization scaled down to a very small core team of staff and let absolutely everyone else go? We looked to our advisors and considered the scenarios, Craig told me, emotion still in his voice many months later. It seemed too risky to keep going as we were and potentially jeopardize everything we had built. Some decisions were relatively clear. For example, they realized it was much more cost-effective to move we schools' resources online than to keep a few school coordinators who wouldn't have the capacity to reach all of Canada's students. But other situations were more complicated. Large projects like Kenya's We College and the Agricultural Learning Center in Ecuador were not yet self-sustainable and needed to be maintained at all costs. The founders and executives mapped out a possible campaign to try to correct the public record and regain the trust of Canadians. But it would take lots of time and money, both in short supply. And the well might already have been too poisoned. Some well-heeled supporters of the charity's work were prepared to, and eventually did, finance an attempt to set the record straight, especially because their own reputations and philanthropic efforts were being dragged through the mud alongside Wee's. Most donors, however, wanted to contribute to programming and not an effort to clear the air. And dollars spent on restoring confidence would leave even less money for the people we served, especially in vulnerable communities around the world. Once the precarious state of the organization's finances and its long-term ability to fundraise in Canada were fully understood, everyone agreed that the best option was to sell off the real estate holdings valued at approximately $40 million to pay off debt and fund an endowment. This would be enough money to finance to completion We Charity's half-finished development projects in communities around the world and to support key programs overseas. Every conversation was through the lens of how we protect the projects, Mark said. Nothing else mattered. Even the organization didn't matter. When you're clear on your purpose, the answer becomes clear. But the organization needed to move quickly. Every month, the charity stayed fully open, spending money on salaries and other expenses meant fewer funds for the endowment and fewer projects we could support globally, Scott explained. Once the Kilberger brothers understood the full financial impact, Mark called Delau, who had started with the organization two decades earlier and had invested her entire professional life in we. After a lengthy conversation and going through the numbers in different scenarios, it just led to this painful silence 
At the end, she said, we knew that there was no other alternative and very hard decisions needed to be made. It was devastating to even contemplate this, saying goodbye to something this important that had been such a big part of my life, not to mention the heartbreaking impact it would have on students and teachers here and overseas. We Charity in Canada had to close. The only option left. Shutting down the organization wasn't as easy as hanging out a for sale sign and waiting for offers to roll in. Projections were that it would take more than a year to downsize the staff, liquidate the assets, complete outstanding development work, and shift We Schools programs online. When it came to the We Global Learning Center, Mark and Craig had to make difficult calls to Hartley Richardson and David Eisenstadt, the main backers, to ask their permissions to put the building on the market and redirect the funds toward the planned endowment. I apologized for letting them down, recalled Craig. I had tears in my eyes, and they were both incredibly gracious. They said that they knew we had fought as hard as we could against the politics and that the money was always meant to have the greatest impact on kids, and they trusted us to ensure that happened. Eisenstadt told me that he was disappointed that the vision behind the WeGLC would never be realized, but he still saw the building as a sound investment in We's ongoing mission, and he unhesitatingly gave his blessings for the charity to use the profits from the sale to support youth mental health initiatives and programs overseas. There was some irony in the fact that the real estate holdings, which had been the target of so much outrage in the press and among politicians, was what allowed the organization to fund the completion of many essential humanitarian programs, ensuring that people had improved food security and access to clean water. Still, it was crushing for Mark and Craig to have to let go of these tangible symbols of everything they'd spent their lives building. Starting to wind down as soon as possible was the only way to save 25 years of project development and sustain it for generations, said Craig. But he acknowledged how much it hurt to see this happen. Of course it was painful. Almost every decision for the past 25 years was made through the lens of growing the charity, choosing an alternative high school so I could keep traveling, pursuing a degree in peace and conflict studies, and spending hundreds of days every year away from home and family. I believed in the work so deeply, I still do. When the idea of shutting down and selling off assets was first discussed with the board at a meeting on August 20th, it was like a grenade went off. Many of us had questions about what these moves really meant. Was the plan to shut down We Charity Canada temporarily or forever? What would happen in the U.S.? What did the financial picture look like if the organization pivoted to the U.S. only? What were the pros and cons of taking an extra month to formulate a clear plan and communication strategy. Board members compiled dozens of written questions 
because we wanted to be sure we had all the facts. Near daily meetings took place as we worked through scenarios, trying to ensure that every possible option had been explored. Many board members, including me, did not want to believe that things couldn't be made to work in Canada. The Kilbergers were prepared to do anything to salvage the organization. They even told board chair Greg Rogers that they would publicly and permanently step away from the charity. But this wouldn't have solved the fundamental problem, which was that we was running out of money. And it would have been a massive burden for the rest of the management team to lead the soul-crushing task of dismantling the organization in Canada on their own. I eventually came to accept that if we charity's co-founders firmly believed the organization could not be financially sustained in Canada, there was no point in fighting that. I also took the view that there was nothing more important than meeting our commitments to the international projects, especially since we days and all-in-person we schools programs were already on hold. Most of my fellow board members shared that view. Kanan Arsarathanam called it a gut-wrenching tough decision, but he saw it as inevitable. Others were more resistant, though, including Greg and Jerry Connolly, both of whom were lifelong educators with enduring ties to the school system and a passion for the importance of service learning as a sound pedagogy. Buoyed by the behind-the-scenes encouragement they were hearing from teachers, they believed that Canadians would come back around and that Mark and Craig would change their minds when they realized how much support they really had. Greg called me many times and expressed the hope that we could find a way through. The issue, unfortunately, was not whether teachers continued to like and use WeSchool's programming, but whether the organization could stop the financial bleeding. On September 2nd, Craig made a presentation to the board via video conference. The picture he painted was bleak. The reality is such that there's been an unbelievable collapse of funding in Canada for politically motivated reasons, he said, and we anticipate further impacts. According to the board minutes, the projected deficit for 2020 through 2021 was $9,147,086 based on an income of $15,254,583 and expenses of $24,401,669. I was devastated as I absorbed the news because I was on vacation and joining the call by cell phone, I couldn't see any other faces, but I didn't need that to know how distraught the other board members felt. I could hear it in their voices and all the more so in the silence. A resolution had already been prepared and circulated. It was lengthy and covered topics like transferring assets to other WE entities and withdrawing the organization's charitable registration from the CRA. I asked aloud to read it in full two times so there was no confusion, and because it was a painful event of great consequences. We were essentially voting ourselves out of existence, at least in Canada. The vote was unanimous, 
for every critic of the charity, whether it was a politician on the national stage or an anonymous troll on Twitter. There were thousands of young people whose passion for change and sense of potential had been awakened by their involvement with WE. Their voices had been largely ignored, but we were all thinking of them when we voted to close WE Charity Canada. It was the right decision, but part of me still wondered if we had made it too quickly or if there was a magic solution we had somehow overlooked. Mark and Craig wondered the same thing. Up until the announcement, we were still making calculations to see if we could turn things around, find a way to make it work, Mark told me later. But the math just didn't add up, Craig agreed. Sometimes you are left with no good choice, he reflected. The only choice is how you exit, still taking care of people. The next step was making the decision public and therefore making it real. Craig and Mark wanted to get their message out in their own words, so they invited veteran CTV news anchor Lisa Laflamme and her crew to the WeGLC to tape a televised interview. The building once filled with busloads of school kids and hundreds of staff now sat empty. But the amphitheater where the interview would take place was stacked high with boxes filled with former employees' personal belongings. Before La Flamme and her crew arrived, there was a mad scramble to send those boxes to their owners or get them into storage so that Mark and Craig's announcement didn't have to take place against this depressing backdrop, a potent and all-too-real symbol of how much things had fallen apart. Sang it out loud. I want to pause here and explain a bit more about what the WeGLC meant to all of us. Until COVID shut down events and emptied the building, it was a gathering place for young people from across the city. It would draw in school groups to take part in workshops or hear talks from politicians, educators, and motivational speakers. In what remains one of Craig's fondest memories, Martin Luther King III spoke to a young audience about his father, racism, and other global issues. That was incredibly powerful, Craig told me. Talking about his father and his legacy and having schools across the country tune in and watch with the broadcast allowing various schools to take part and ask questions. It was just amazing. That moment, Craig said, was everything he'd envisioned for the WeGLC when he and donor Hartley Richardson first talked about the idea while trekking across the savannah of Kenya's Maasai Mara Reserve several years earlier. Richardson told Craig, that we needed a headquarters to reflect the next phase in the organization's journey. Craig imagined a space where young people could come to learn and share experiences and even find support to launch their own social ventures. The kind of place he wished he'd had when he founded We Charity with his brother all those years ago. Thanks to targeted donations from Richardson and David Eisenstadt, 
the organization was able to buy a heritage building in Toronto's downtown Moss Park neighborhood, and renovations began in the spring of 2016. It was both a model of green building practices and a showcase for cutting-edge technology. Through its Skype-enabled classroom and state-of-the-art broadcasting facilities, the WeGLC made it possible to connect Canadian schools with communities around the globe. The organization was able to provide leadership training to young people in the most remote Indigenous communities and bring together schools from as far away as Australia and Egypt in a celebration of social good. Schools, youth groups, and families could take part in training and workshops. Educators could engage in professional development opportunities, and young social entrepreneurs could network, hone their skills, and create new social impact plans. And employees were excited to come to work each day in a building that buzzed with energy and hope for the future. The WeGLC opened its doors in September 2017. Dan Kuzmicki, WE's head of enterprise services, called it a privilege to be one of the few people given a hard hat tour while the center was still under renovation. We no longer have to have a server room that floods because someone's using the toilet upstairs, he realized. No more raccoons chewing our Wi-Fi. He called it the crowning achievement of his career at Wii. But the building also represented something highly personal for Dan. Soon after the property was acquired and the technological vision was developed, he suffered a life-threatening illness. My pancreas exploded, and I was borderline dead, he explained. In a coma, several surgeries, the ICU, I was hospitalized for four months. When he eventually returned to work, it was with a renewed sense of purpose and a desire to make a lasting change. I wanted to build something extraordinary, a once-in-a-lifetime project for generations of young people in Canada. The news that the building would have to be sold was the worst thing, he said. It's just an absolute shame. It was my absolute pride and joy. Delau also felt the loss personally. So many special events, leadership workshops, and community activities happened in that building in such a few short years, she said. One of the most meaningful events for her took place in early 2020, when she had the privilege of hosting a citizenship ceremony featuring 65 new Canadians. It was so special for me because I was part of a ceremony like that many years ago. These 65 people represented 65 different stories of triumph, struggle, and ambition in one room. Unfortunately, on Lisa Laflamme's tour of the WeGLC, there was none of the dynamism and energy and hope that had once filled the halls and offices. It was like a ghost town. They say that when you die, your life flashes before your eyes, Craig noted, thinking back almost a year later. Well, that tour was all our dreams and aspirations 
flashing before our eyes. And every unoccupied meeting room and unused Skype pod, we pointed out to Lisa, made the building feel that much emptier and more forlorn, Mark agreed. It was a difficult six months leading up to that interview, but it forced us to confront everything that had been lost, he said. This place was supposed to be a free space for youth to launch their own charities and social enterprises, a safe space that would make it easier for young people who wanted to make a difference than it had been for us in our youth. In the days when caring about the world's problems got you taunted and shoved into lockers, it was distressing. Mark even made this point during the interview. We wish you could have seen it in its prime, he told Laflamme as he led her past a wall of photographs of early petition drives, fundraisers, and other milestones of Wee's history, with students running in and having conversations. Kind of like a science center for kids who want to change the world. But that nostalgic mood would be overshadowed by the somber message that he and Craig were about to deliver. Later, seated in the amphitheater, an emotional Mark told Laflemme, we're going to be announcing today that we will be winding down We Charity here in Canada. We started the organization back in 1995 when we were kids in Thornhill in our parents' basement. And this is our 25th anniversary as an organization. So this is an incredibly sad day for us as an organization, but an important one as well in terms of what we hope to achieve with the organizational resources for the future. The law was watching the taping from the sidelines and said she almost broke down when Mark uttered those words. It obviously was not a surprise to me. I had been part of the decision-making process alongside the board, but to hear it spoken aloud, there in front of a TV camera, made it somehow more real. It was really happening. It was over. I asked Mark and Craig what they were thinking in the moment, and they echoed Dalal's reaction, but with the added weight of feeling like they had let people down. The more I talked to Lisa, the more thoughts were piling up in my own head, Mark said. The things lost and the people hurt. The wee days and school programs that my own kids and Craig's would never be able to be a part of. The staff, who were our family, literally. We attended their weddings and family funerals, and now they were struggling. They needed counseling because of everything the past year had put them through. It became a minute-by-minute effort to keep a calm presence and not let all the grief and despair and rage come pouring out there on the camera. I'm not sure I succeeded. At one point, Laflamme asked Mark if he was angry and that despair was on full display. Of course, he replied, fighting back tears. You're obviously upset, Laflamme noted. Of course, he said again. 
Who are you angry at, she pressed. Not angry at anything, Mark answered. I'm angry at the situation. You know, 25 years of incredible passion, incredible impact, the opportunity to change lives, an amazing team who've been there throughout the process, and then politics took over. In hindsight, Mark told Laflamme, he and Craig should have asked more questions of the government, but they still viewed it as the right decision to say yes to the CSSG, and even knowing the outcome, they said they would make the same choice today. If you ask us if we had the opportunity to answer that cell phone call again, he said, I would say yes, we would. As crazy as that is during a pandemic, when given an opportunity to help 100,000 young people in this country, an opportunity to put up your hand, i do it all over again. A Surreal End At 4 p.m. on September 9th, 79 days after the CSSG launched and quickly imploded into a political nightmare, 22 days after Trudeau prorogued Parliament and left We Charity to twist in the wind and just an hour before Lisa Laflamme promoted her exclusive interview on Supper Hour CTV newscast across the country, Dalau, Mark, and Craig held a virtual town hall with all staff to share the news that We Charity Canada was closing. Most of the senior leadership team knew what was coming, but it was something else to hear the words said aloud and with such finality. Mark and Craig were together and looked even more forlorn and haggard than they had in their appearance before the FINA committee weeks earlier. With Craig looking on and trying not to break down, Mark took a deep breath and broke the news. We are so grateful for each and every person's contribution, he said. Today's news is incredibly difficult. I recognize this is a lot to take in, and we all need time to process this. I'm still trying to process it all. That said, I can't underscore enough that this decision does not negate the good work we have all done. Craig picked up the baton to remind everyone of what had been accomplished in the past 25 years. I'm so proud of all that we have achieved together, he said before recalling some of his fondest memories and the impossible goals that had been reached. None of this could have happened without all of you. Dalal, who had been with the organization for nearly every milestone, was overcome with emotion as she also shared her gratitude to the team. Although this news is heartbreaking, I take comfort in the fact that we will continue to do good by protecting the youth and communities we serve. The projects will be sustained for generations to come. This was always our why. And even in such difficult circumstances, our compass remains the well-being and protection of the future of young people. It was a surreal end 
to what was for many people years and even decades of work. Some staff members muted on the video conference, cried silently. Others typed their sentiments in the live chat. Several of their comments were later shared with me. I'm a better person because of we, wrote one team member. I'm rooted in the pride of what we've accomplished together and what is now protected in our global partner communities, another typed. It's been the greatest honor of my life. I've met the best of friends, experienced the joy of mission-based work, and remain so proud of all that we've done. A third said, these past two years have been some of the best in my life. Seeing the impact we have on youth firsthand in schools across North America and from around the world at camp, I look forward to working hard to end our story strong. I spoke with two long-serving staff members who were on the call and asked them what went through their minds as they took in the news. It was a hurricane of emotions, one told me, but the most overwhelming was guilt. Guilt that we had failed to protect our staff, our beneficiaries, and the young people for whom we do this work in both Canada and abroad. In what was an already emotional and difficult year compounded by a summer from hell, it felt like we'd worked so hard only to let everyone down. It was an emotional journey to get to that announcement. But the light at the end of the tunnel was the promise to support and protect what was built. I knew what was coming, said the second, because I'd been part of some of the discussions leading up to the meeting. But knowing it was coming did not make it any easier to hear the words said out loud. It was suddenly very real. And when my colleagues started writing in the chat about what the organization meant to them, that's what really made me break down. She told me she started replaying all her happy memories from her first wee day to her first trip to Kenya, but then felt overwhelmed thinking about a future that would never be realized. By now, I have gone through every stage of grief, sometimes all seven in one day, she admitted. Anger, guilt, and depression are most prominent, but hope is starting to come back. Not surprisingly, politicians and journalists showed little sympathy. NDP MP Charlie Angus told CTV News that same night that the closure was proof of his earlier statements about We Charity's need for a government bailout because this was a group that was in free fall economically. Conservative MP Pierre Polyev tweeted, We closure changes nothing. Finance Committee will resume investigations once Parliament opens. You can run, but you can't hide. As soon as La Flamme's interview aired, a throng of reporters and TV crews surrounded the WGLC, blocking every exit so no one inside could leave without first providing a quote. Photographers pressed their cameras against the windows to take pictures of staff members. 
even an Uber Eats food delivery for employees was hijacked by the apparently hungry press brigade outside. While Craig was stuck in the office, someone drove onto the front of his lawn of his home, bringing their vehicle within feet of the living room window and repeatedly flashing their high beams and blasting the horn, terrifying Craig's wife and sons inside. The police were called once again, as they had been when Mark's home address was printed in the Toronto Sun. The next morning, the headlines were no better. The Toronto Star blared, keep watching the money as We Charity shuts its Canadian operations. Observers say, the accompanying article carried a photo of a masked man wheeling boxes out of the WeGLC. Further down the page, Mark Bloomberg opined that the closure was more of a PR initiative to quell criticism than an attempt to resolve issues and move forward. And Kate Bayon was back to declare that she was having a difficult time with the math. She continued to insist, without a shred of evidence, that something fishy was going on. With everything about we sometimes, she said, it looks lovely on the outside, and you really need to read the fine print. A Trail of Loss Remarkably, and in this moment and in the months that followed, virtually no politicians, pundits, or journalists reflected on what the closure of We Charity really meant. No one sought out those who stood to lose the most, the millions of students, educators, children in developing countries, social entrepreneurs, volunteers, and staff, to hear their stories and share them with others. Certainly, no one called me or any board members to ask what we thought. No one in politics or the media even asked publicly whether this was the right outcome or whether Canadians were better or worse off without we. The failure to make space for and to listen to those who had lost the most is, in my view, the saddest and most frustrating part of this story. These were the voices of thousands of we staff who gave their hearts and souls to the mission of thousands of young volunteers who had traveled to We Partner communities abroad and been transformed by what they saw, of hundreds of thousands of students who had benefited from programming in We schools across the country, and of those most in need, people in developing countries who relied on and partnered with We Charity, whose profound losses I will come back to in later chapters. It is long past time to let those voices be heard. One of the most poignant stories of loss I heard came from Bill Elkington, co-founder of Alberta-based investment firm JV Driver Group. After his daughter Erica died by suicide in 2015, Elkington became an outspoken advocate for mental health care and suicide prevention. He wanted no other family to experience what his had. In 2016, 
he formed the Erica Legacy Foundation, which was the founding partner of the We Well Being Initiative, a program to promote mental health by supplying tools, resources, and supports for young people and educators. When I interviewed him, Elkington was remarkably emotional and open. He told me that his daughter's suicide had devastated his family and that he'd quickly descended into depression and even considered ending his own life. What happens with suicide is that often one leads to another, he said, and you meet lots of families where it's not just one person who died by suicide in the family. It hits multiple people, and I almost died by suicide. It was only when he finally came to terms with the mental health dimensions of suicide that his despair and that of his wife, Sabrina, and their other children transformed into a drive to help others. My generation, we are not going to change our thinking, Elkington told me. But if we get enough youth to become this army of advocates on their own mental health as well as that of their family and friends, we will make a huge impact on changing the well-being of our society going forward. And so that was how we got connected with WE. While the project will live on through the Well-Being Foundation, its capacity and impact will be diminished. Without WE schools bringing resources directly to students, the reach of the project is curtailed. And Elkington told me without WE Charity actively teaching the teachers how to deal with mental health issues and suicide prevention, the loss is just absolutely huge. He said that kids used to come up to him and his wife after they told their daughter's story at wee days and say, thank you. I sometimes feel that way, and I don't know who to talk to. In those moments, he felt the charity made clear to young people that even if you don't fit in elsewhere, there's a spot for you in we. Elkington believes that the impact of the charity's mental health programming was especially important for LGBTQ and indigenous youth who often feel marginalized and are a focus of the Wellbeing Foundation's outreach efforts. What we lost is the ability to distribute knowledge and compassion and explain what's actually going on in your minds to a whole generation of youth, he said. We schools was a delivery mechanism that had the ear of so many youth that we don't have otherwise. And when you get four million youth a year touched by some aspect of we for 10 years, that's 40 million people. And we had an opportunity to change the outcomes for so many people to tell them you're not alone. And now that is lost. And what of those millions of young students loss of access to potentially life-saving tools and resources in the midst of a well-documented pandemic-related mental health crisis is just the tip of the iceberg. Where were the news reports about the impact of discontinuing We Schools programming across the country, including campaigns to address homelessness 
and develop environmentally friendly schools. What did the media think would replace WE's teaching resources for bullying or the hundreds of WE staff dedicated to mentoring youth groups and supporting educators? What would happen to kids who wanted to develop leadership skills or effect positive change in the world? What would be the fate of indigenous young people who could have participated in sacred circle programs focused on building nonprofits or social enterprises? Craig told me that his greatest fear was that two decades of progress in youth activism would be undone. When we started in 1995, young people were the least likely demographic to volunteer in Canada. By our 25th anniversary, they were among the most likely to volunteer. What happened was hard on us, but it also was hard on a lot of students and teachers involved in our work. Craig's comment made me think about twins Ashley and Emma Dezus. They were inspired by we to work for their community in so many ways, from collecting canned goods for the food bank to knitting hats for the homeless. Over the years, they'd run countless awareness campaigns on local and global issues and had cajoled a host of area businesses into supporting their work. Did anyone ask them what they had lost? They told me they had no intention of stopping what they'd started, but without the support of we, they knew it would be more difficult going forward. Our WE group is continuing, Ashley confirmed. But it's been really hard because certain resources like the WE GLC and certain online campaigns have stopped. Perhaps the Desus sisters, who are full of energy and drive, would have become involved in volunteering even if WE had never existed. But millions of other children would not have been motivated to serve others. The twins told me that we had made them feel empowered and it inspired them to keep giving back year after year. There was something so compelling about we and the resources that it gave you, Ashley explained. And it wasn't only to raise money. It was the awareness piece as well. They made you want to come back and do the same campaigns every year. It's clear that some things really haven't changed since Craig started out all those years ago. Most nonprofits still have no idea how to really engage kids like Ashley and Emma or take them seriously. They don't know how to help them get started or inspire them to keep going. You can't just put a young person in a room and say, okay, go and raise $500. You have to give them help, Ashley noted. A lot of campaigns we did before we were with WE. You give some money to a charity or you do a fundraiser and we never got a single letter back or anything. We're like, oh, okay. Well, hopefully that went somewhere and helped someone. But WE always wrote you something, showing you every day what the impact was. It kept you wanting to come back. This kind of engagement also had a multiplier effect. 
that I haven't seen replicated by other charities. Our We Club started off as the four of us, doing just a couple of campaigns and meeting at our house, Emma said. The next year, we came back and we had about seven members, and then this year, we have around 11 members. It just keeps growing. I remembered that Isa Abbott had also talked about the inspiration she felt as her school's We Club grew. Every week, she and her classmates would organize fundraisers and come up with new ways to help out in the community. She told me that she was just one of countless young people who were profoundly impacted by we. For children who are immersed in environments like this, they can begin to adopt inclusiveness, empathy, and compassion during such formative years of their lives, she observed. The WE Clubs provided a level of social-emotional learning that kids don't necessarily get from the school football team or chess club. We really encourage you to look within your community to identify needs there, and then, she explained, the organization offered the support necessary to get projects off the ground. Isa thinks it is the broader community that has lost out with WE's closure. Now more than ever, we need young people stepping up and supporting their communities. Kathleen Murray is a 17-year-old who started studying education at Queen's University this past fall. She was a high school student when she participated in a me-to-we service trip to Tanzania, which she said was one of the highlights of her life. It was amazing, the warmth, all the people, it was fantastic. We were so welcomed into the community. She said the experience taught her to respect the people of those communities and feel gratitude for what she has. It also inspired a desire to translate that gratitude into action to help others. You get so much out of it. It provides you with a greater appreciation for what you have and you really understand how other people live. Definitely bringing the lessons home to implement with your own families and your own communities is really important. She said she was disappointed that other students would no longer be able to have the experience she did. I think a lot of people don't get this kind of exposure here living in Canada, she noted. It's hard for me to really tell people and my friends here at home what it was like without them actually being there and knowing. I can try, but they won't have the same appreciation or experience that I had. One thing I wonder about is how many of those students might have gone on to start their own nonprofits, as Isa did, or take part in the organization's programs to encourage social entrepreneurship. Those opportunities have been squandered too. As we incubate and we scale up got off the ground in 2020, they quickly showed how passionate young people are about social innovation and how support from we could help bring their ideas to fruition. In one early success story, 
Luke Vigeant scaled his growing business and online mental health service called Inkbolt, allowing him to provide affordable, barrier-free care to more people at the height of the pandemic. In another case, 16-year-old Avishka Gotham from Nobleton, Ontario, founded Vegetable, a company dedicated to teaching elementary school students how to divert organic food waste otherwise destined for landfills through vermicomposting, using worms to compost and create high-quality fertilizer. But John Warren, the head of Wee's social enterprise programs and the former lead executive of venture and corporate programs at Mars, fears that future Luke Vigeants and Avishka Gothams will have nowhere to go. Craig and Mark Hilberger created a supportive environment, and we had talented people coming to us because of what they have done, he explained. It's going to set Canada back, the loss of that leadership. There are other social innovation programs around, but the environment that we represented was unique. It will take decades for something else to really replace it. Warren also said that the media's negative portrayal of we to wees business model had put a damper on entrepreneurial innovation across the nonprofit sector. It's brought an enormous chill into the whole charitable sector. Social entrepreneurs are looking at what happened to we and are scared of the same things happening to them. Of course, this wasn't a story you're going to read in your local paper. As far as I knew, journalists never sought out Warren and asked for his views, just as they never sought out Isa Abbott or Kathleen Murray or Luke Vigeant. But what rankles, maybe most of all, is that they paid almost no attention to teachers and the losses they would suffer. I have spoken to many of them, from current and former board members like Greg Rogers, Jerry Connolly, and Mary Eileen Donovan, to Donna Cansfield, the former president of the Canadian School Boards Association, to younger educators who are just starting out and drawing on what they learned from we programming as students. Every educator I spoke to saw the value in we and keenly understood the loss. Ruben Borba, who was involved in we charities programs as a student and then became a teacher himself, spoke about the clear positive impact of engaging his kids through we. It gives students such a self-esteem boost, he noted, and the power to finally say, hey, look, I'm not just a student, you know. I'm a vessel of change. Being able to have that power, to have that voice, to have that advocacy, not just for themselves, but for their communities. You see the enthusiasm you see the students, you see the light spark in them. That realization, like, hey, I can change the world. If I put myself into this, if I set my goals, if I set my passion, I can do anything that I set my mind to. It is a huge loss, he said, for his students 
to no longer have the same opportunities to grow and realize their own capacity to create positive change. Some educators I spoke to expressed frustration and even anxiety at the prospect of a future without we. Anybody that I've talked to that's an educator is overwhelmed. They're burnt out and they're scared, said Massimo McCurry, a newly minted eighth grade teacher in the Halton Catholic District School Board, just west of Toronto. They're scared not for themselves, but for the kids who are growing up year after year, lacking the motivation that they should be having. They are lacking the experiences. Mercury first got involved with WE when he was studying to become a teacher and participated in a Me to WE trip to Tanzania. His own experiences with the organization then became a part of his teaching. I'm able to use my experiences in a social studies lesson and help these students understand that there's more to service learning than just cleaning up litter outside your home in Oakville or donating money. He said We Charity was providing support that no one else could at a time when the education system has become more difficult for teachers to work in and students to learn in. People don't realize the impact that it has closing the doors to We Charity. They don't realize that these programs exist to provide that extra support to teachers so they can then make the classroom a better experience for the kids, Mercury said. It's worrisome. If We Charity isn't present, that's a loss for the generations after us. Mercury's concerns were shared by Tanya McPhee, a teacher at the Milton, Ontario school named for Craig Kilberger. I'll admit that I'm not sure how we'll proceed moving forward without access to the same resources, she said, noting that she routinely used We Schools materials in her teaching. The organization's work really frames the entire civics unit at our school because the idea behind the We Movement is that we have a responsibility to be engaged, to be informed, and to care. And we're able to rely on WE programming and resources because they don't promote any specific cause or interest. Instead, the cause has always been youth empowerment. Testimonial, Tanya McPhee. Tanya McPhee teaches Canadian and international law, world issues, and civics at Craig Kilberger Secondary School in Milton, Ontario. She's been teaching for more than 20 years and has traveled the world with her students, helping them increase their cultural awareness and gain a broader perspective on global issues and sustainable development. I was extremely disappointed when I saw how some media sources that I've trusted for a long time covered the so-called We Charity scandal. Little was done to take stock of all the good that came from the organization, and worse still, no attention was paid to all the damage that has resulted from the unfair coverage. 
This damage has impacted not just We Charity itself and its sustainable development work, but also the legacy of the hundreds of thousands of young people who've been inspired by We Programming. Where are the first-hand accounts of the educators who have witnessed their students' growth, activism, and community leadership? Why are our experiences and those of our students being left out of the media's coverage? Good things happened at every school that took part in We Schools programming. Teachers and students were provided with access to meaningful leadership development tools, service learning modules, and youth engagement events. Through their participation in the WE movement, generations of Canadian students found ways to look beyond themselves and become agents of change. Much of the work that WE Charity inspired has taken place in our local communities. Hundreds of Canadian nonprofit organizations have benefited from these initiatives. All the negative and unbalanced media coverage has been devastatingly damaging to the legacy of the young people who have devoted countless hours to volunteering with nonprofits, spearheading initiatives, and fundraising in their schools and communities to combat issues like food insecurity, the indigenous water crisis, and cyberbullying. This was authentic and meaningful work that contributed to a better, more equitable world for us all. One of the real tragedies, perhaps the biggest in all this, is that the youth of today and the future will no longer have access to this incredible programming and these life-changing opportunities. This story is missing from the media coverage and as a result, from the consciousness of many Canadians. To watch politicians and the media destroy all this without considering the perspective of educators and the young people we serve has been profoundly disappointing. Canadians have a right to know what we lost. That's why it's a particular source of frustration to her that young people are all but ignored by journalists writing about we. I know many students wanted their voices to be heard so Canadians could better understand how much this organization mattered to them. After all, this is the organization that gave them the leadership skills to advocate for themselves and what they believe in. It taught them that their voices are powerful. It's worth noting here that current and former students involved with WE were not scarce or hard to track down. Many raised their hands. They had answers to questions that reporters should have been asking. In Chapter 7, I recounted how Ashley and Emma shared their positive experiences with the CBC's Fifth Estate and the hurt they felt upon learning that the hour-long program excluded not just their voices, but the voices of all young people. The stark truth is that the media was only interested in hearing negative views. Those who had something good to say weren't what the story was about. So even though We Charity was founded to serve young people, we barely heard from them at all. We Charity Canada board chair, 
Greg Rogers echoed the same frustrations. He knew many students and teachers who wanted to be heard but could not find a forum. He referred some of them to me, and I interviewed them for this book. Throughout this entire year, I don't think I ever heard the voice of a student or the voice of a teacher, he noted, which is sad because they were the ones who were truly impacted by this. Greg had been a teacher himself, a career he was inspired to take up when he and his wife spent time living and working in Zambia in their 20s, making him acutely aware of the value of youth service and cross-cultural experiences. It was a life event he had hoped to share with his grandson, who was supposed to have gone on his first wee trip in August 2020. I'm so disappointed and so sad, you know, that he may not have this experience that he was looking so forward to. Like Greg, who knew Mark when he was still a student at Braybuff College School, Jerry Conley saw we grow from almost the beginning. She was the director of education at the Toronto District School Board when Craig and Mark asked her if she would support an event celebrating youth service. Conley thought it would involve maybe a few hundred students and just about fell over when she realized the brothers were talking about thousands. But she backed it because she saw that the charity was making cultural change happen in schools across Canada. She believes that students and teachers will continue to be active in creating positive change in the years to come, but she worries their impact will be diminished. I think we made it clear that students wanted to be involved in the community, wanted to provide service, wanted to be involved in the whole issue of inclusion and equity and social justice and that's never going to go away, and nor should it, she said. But without We Charity, there's now a big gap in terms of the contribution that students can make, and I feel very sad about that. Thank you for listening. You can download more episodes of What We Lost wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Tafik Rangwala's national bestseller or to buy the book, visit whatwelost.com and discover the real story behind the CSSG controversy.